Today, this morning, we will be in Matthew chapter 10, uh, continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, If you were with us last week, remember we talked about the 12 disciples being sent out, and we put a huge emphasis on communicating the gospel and what it means to be uh, sent out. This is a continuation of that. Uh, Jesus continues to talk. So all of these things that Jesus is speaking of connects back to this being sent out, this preaching the gospel, the consequences of preaching the gospel, the persecution that we can expect when we purpose to live for Jesus. So we ended in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, and that's actually where I want to start off today, and that's going to be the main uh, emphasis um, of today's text um, and the, the title of this message. So the title of the message is simply Fear God. Fear God. Okay, that's what Jesus is going to talk about here. And if you would flip with me to Matthew chapter 10, starting it off in verse 26, says, after Jesus, Jesus just told them, you're going to be handed over to the magistrates and the governors and they're going to persecute you for my namesake. Brother is going to come against brother, family member against family member. All these horrible things are going to happen to you. Therefore, do not fear. Like, what? Seriously? You just told me all these things that I should be afraid of. And then he says, do not fear. In verse 26, therefore, considering all these things, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Now, first of all, why therefore do not fear? There's more things to be afraid of than death. There's a lot more things to be afraid of than death, and that's what Jesus is going to focus on here. And he'll speak of the Father and eternal judgment in a moment. But he says, In that second part of verse 26, he says, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Specifically, uh, Jesus is speaking of the martyrs' deaths. Okay, He's saying, there's going to be a lot of people that come after you and say we're persecuting you in the name of God. Right? Like Saul of Tarsus, this is what he was saying. He was persecuting Christians in the name of God. And what Jesus is saying here is all those things that that happen in secret, they're going to kill you and persecute you and imprison you, and they're going to claim that it's for this good thing. I'm going to bring justice. And the history books will reveal that these martyrs died an honorable death. And we have that in the history books. Um, I encourage you to look at that and the different deaths of the disciples. We'll probably talk about it eventually, but it's very interesting how they went out and what's said about them in history. And that's what Jesus is getting out here. He's going to reveal what actually happened in these circumstances. And again, we can point to the history books, but this also connects to us personally and practically. There, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. If Jesus is going to expose those that persecuted the apostles and those that persecute us, he'll also expose us. We can expect him to expose us. There's nothing that we do in secret that's not going to be exposed openly. Now, it's interesting how the Lord does this so often. Um, in so many ways, especially when his hand is on a ministry, he'll choose to expose those things that are done in secret. And I've seen this, sadly, uh, even in my church uh, back home in Fort Lauderdale, where I came from, and our senior pastor, he fell into um, adultery, and he was exposed. Now, God wasn't judging him. God wasn't exposing him because he was mad at him. He was exposing him because he loved him. And he wanted to bring him to a place of healing. And so often we can look at, I want to hold these things and do these things in secret. I don't want them to be revealed or exposed. But God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to, if we don't take care of this, I'm going to expose these things because if you're not exposed, you're not going to be healed. So confess 
instead of allowing God to expose these things. If you look in Matthew chapter 5, sorry, Ephesians chapter 5, we're in Matthew. Uh, This brings some further clarity to this exposure. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Don't have fellowship with these things, expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Jesus is the light of the world. God is light. What he's really getting at here, and there's a lot to it, but he's saying, hey, expose the things that are done in darkness or God's going to expose them for you. Let's confess those things so that we can experience the healing. So this is very practical for us. Moving on to Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, says, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear preach on the housetops. Now remember, Jesus is specifically speaking of the gospel, okay? We got to understand that this whole text, but I'm going to take it because it it, it connects to so many different aspects of our Christian walk. So he's specifically speaking of the gospel. These things, these lessons that I'm teaching you in the hidden place, he's talking about those intimate settings that he had with the disciples, right? Uh, he was just on the Sermon on the Mount. He, he did the Sermon on the Mount. He was up there with his disciples, speaking to his disciples. These things that I'm telling you in these intimate settings, they're not to remain just between me and you. I want you to proclaim them from the housetops. I'm revealing these things to you, not that you just, it's just between me and you. Like, you know, like how middle schoolers sometimes they'll do the little, like, they'll whisper to each other and the kids across the table at lunch are like, what are they talking about? like whispering the secret thing like jesus will do that he'll whisper these things to us we'll have like these secret like conversations with us you know what maybe it's in our devotional life or when we're studying the word and he reveals these things to us it's like oh jesus that's so cool she's like hey yeah that was between me and you but i want you to proclaim this thing from the rooftops i want everybody to know about this thing Now, we see in Scripture and even in our personal lives that there's certain times and certain settings that Jesus tells us things, it's just between me and him. It's just between you and him. We see that often when he heals people, right? Lepers and different people that he heals, he says, go and tell no one. That was between me and you, right? But we see here Jesus saying, hey, these things that I'm revealing to you in the secret place, preach on the housetops. See, God doesn't give me knowledge so that I'm just knowledgeable. He gives me knowledge so that I share it. He speaks these things in the secret place to me so that I'll communicate it to you or whoever else will give me the time to listen. But it's the same thing for us, the things that you hear in the church, the things that you learn in the church, the things that God's speaking to you and revealing to you, he expects you to proclaim those things from the rooftops. It's not just here, we're not here, and you probably heard it said uh, before, we're not here to just be um, like obese spiritual Christians, if you will, where we're just constantly eating, 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 and getting all this meat and eating all this food, and we're not spitting it back out. We're not teaching it to other people. We're not communicating the things that the Lord is revealing to us in this intimate setting. And what happens when you eat too much? You eat too much meat, you get tired, right? You get lazy, right? You just want to take a nap. You got to burn it off. You got to do something with it. I'm feeding you meat because I want you, I want you to work it off. I want you to proclaim this thing from the housetops picking it up in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is what I was talking about. There's more things to fear than man in persecution. He says, Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Don't be afraid of your persecutors, but rather fear him who is able not only to destroy the body, but cast the soul into hell. Remember, yes, there's consequences for sharing the gospel, but there may be greater consequences for not. Right? And that's what he's getting at. Here, don't fear those who can kill the body, fear God. And this is the first of three points. 
Fear God, not man. Simple. Fear God, not man. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writes, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. What we see Paul saying here, he's understanding, okay, I'm either purposing to please men or I'm purposing to please God. Either I have fear of man and my fear of man is leading me in my decision-making or my fear of God is leading me in my decision-making. And as we'll see later on in this text, when we're walking in the fear of the Lord, often it doesn't please men, right? Often it causes dysfunction in, uh, and division in relationships. And Jesus is gonna talk about it Uh, a little more in verses 34 to 39. But before we get into that, because we'll cover it a little later, I want to understand this concept of fearing God. What does it mean to biblically fear God? I'm going to give you a couple verses. Three. In Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Okay? Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, the fear of the Lord is, is the beginning of knowledge. It's the foundation of knowledge. My fear of the Lord should lead me to a place of seeking understanding and knowledge of the Lord. It's not a fear that should make me run away from the Lord. It should be a fear that leads me to run towards the Lord. Okay? In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, what's wisdom in the Bible? Knowledge applied. It's the application of knowledge. So the fear of the Lord, okay, it leads me to to gain more knowledge and understanding of the Lord, but not just the knowledge and understanding. It leads me to a place of applying this knowledge and understanding. That's what walking in wisdom is. So uh, I'm walking in what I'm learning. I'm not simply learning it. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, Solomon, at the very end of this book, I almost feel like it's important to read the whole book, but I feel like you can almost just skip right to the very end of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, he says, basically, of all these things that I just told you, it's, it's all summed up in this. Fear God and keep his commandments. You can just read that part of Ecclesiastes and that's the takeaway from it. Now there's a lot there. Um, those of you uh, in the men's study, I know Adam's been teaching through Ecclesiastes, but the fear, fear God leads to keeping his commandments. It leads to walking in obedience. Not just the 10 commandments, anything that God tells you to do. One of the things Jesus tells us to do is Go therefore, make disciples, go therefore, preach the gospel, right? That's a commandment from the Lord. He tells us to do that. So my fear of the Lord should lead me to share the gospel despite the consequences. Picking it up in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Then he says, After he just says, fear God because of what he can do to you, okay? He says, fear God because what he can do to you. And there's so many examples before I get there. We see the people that encountered God in the Bible. You look at like an Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 or a John in Revelation chapter 1. Isaiah says, I'm undone, I'm unclean. What is he saying? He's like, I feel like I'm going to die. That's what he says. In John in Revelation chapter 1, he says, he fell on his face as if he was dead. He literally thought that he was dead. And Jesus had to touch him and say, hey, it's okay, John. It's gonna be okay. These people that have encountered God face to face, like fear of the Lord, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm unholy. I'm unclean, Isaiah says. I'm undone, I'm unclean. I dwell with the people of unclean lips. I, I don't belong in your presence at all. You're perfect, you're holy. Your holiness reveals my unholiness. That's what we see when people encounter God in the Bible. So the fear of the Lord is like, oh my gosh, you are perfect and holy and I am not. I don't belong anywhere near you. But then look what he says. Look at what he could do to me because of my own holiness. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin 
and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, it's interesting in the past, we've talked about this text a little bit uh, in Luke and other uh, teachings that I've done, but this is where we are in Matthew, so obviously the Lord wants us to understand this. Again, he says, fear God because of what he can do. He can kill the body and cast your soul into hell. But then he says, are not sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. What is he saying? Sparrows aren't very valuable to man, sold for a copper coin. That was like a, a, a 16th of a day's wage. But God values the sparrows. And the very hair of your head are all numbered. Very hairs of your head. Do not therefore, do not fear therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. That's point number two. Fear God because God cares. Fear God because God cares. Yes, fear God because of what he can do to you, but also fear God because of what he won't do because he loves you. Yeah, he can kill the body. Yeah, he can cast one into hell, but look at what he's not going to do because he loves you. He's not going, he won't do that for those that are in Christ, for those that believe in Jesus Christ and have that relationship with God. He's not going to do that, but recognize what he can do. It's like your dad, you know? It's like, he's our heavenly father. It's like, ah, when my dad came home when I was a kid and I wasn't doing something right, like I had that fear in me and I was like, I know what he could do right now. I almost felt like Isaiah sometimes I would fall down like, I'm undone, I'm unclean, he's gonna beat me, yada, yada, yada. My dad wasn't abusive, but still, it was just the eyes. Like he had those eyes, those big blue piercing eyes that I felt like, oh my gosh, something bad's gonna happen. All right, we need to have a talk. I'd get the talk instead of the, the whooping. And it was like, man, wow. I know what he could have done to me because he's much more powerful than me. And I know I deserve this. But then he gives me grace and it's like, wow. Man, dad cares. And this is like on an exponential level because it's God, okay? Fear God because God cares. That just brought back so many memories. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes, by the way. That just came to me. Um, <laughs> don't spank me, don't spank me. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, so he says, look at this. He says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Okay, you know how many hairs you have on your head? Okay, redheads. Who, who's a redhead? Alex. Alex, about 90,000 hairs on Alex's head. It's a lot of hairs, right? What about brunettes? We got a lot of brunettes here. A lot of brunettes. About 120,000 hairs on your head. Blondes. Blondes have the most hair. 140 to 145,000 hairs on your head for those natural blondes, the natural blondes. That's a lot of hairs, right? So I want you to look to the person next to you. I want you to start counting their hair. Count every hair. What? Why not? You care about the person sitting next to you, right? Most of you, the person sitting next to you is either a friend or a family member, someone that you love. But you don't care how many hairs are on their head, right? You might love them. You might care for them. You don't care how many hairs are on their head. God does. That's how much God cares. That's a lot. He cares a lot about us. And what is he saying here? He cares about the little things. He cares about the little things that happen to our life. When one hair falls, God knows about it. He knows about every little thing that happens to us. He's intimately involved in our lives. In Psalm 139, it says, his thoughts towards us are like the sands of the seashore. Think about that. He's thinking about us constantly. He doesn't stop thinking about us. That's how much he loves us. He's deeply concerned about every detail of our life. So, He's saying in context of persecution, hey, if something happens to you, don't worry about it because it didn't happen to you apart from my will, even if one hair fell to the ground. 
Now, God, he deeply cares for us. He deeply cares for animals. He says that the sparrows, God, God values the sparrows. A couple years back, uh, my sister had this dog named Toby, and he was like a person. He was a little Jack Russell, and he was the smartest dog ever. Now, I have another dog now, and I love him to death. Toby was just like out of this world. He thought, if anyone's ever had a Jack Russell, he thought he was a 100-pound dog. Um, he would stand up the pit bulls or Great Danes or you name it. He thought he was the man. He would climb trees. He would climb trees. He would jump off the boat while we were driving and just start, start swimming, going after birds, going after whatever. This dog was amazing. He was so cool. Loved this dog. So just before uh, Christmas Eve service a few years back, um, I started getting these texts. Hey, Toby's not doing so good. He's bleeding. Like he, 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 he's like, every time he's going to the bathroom, large quantities of blood are coming out. And they're like, no, Toby. He's like 10 or 11. He's like, he's got some life left in him. And my sister's like, please pray for him. And, and my brother's like, dude, I don't know. Man, this is going to suck so bad if Toby dies, yada, yada, yada. So I'm work, like after this, I'm praying about that. And, and my prayer is like, not just, I was like, God, uh, for some reason, God, I want you to do something. I want you to intervene in this situation for my brother's faith. For some reason, that was my prayer. And my brother was walking strong with the Lord, but for some reason, that's what I felt like I was supposed to pray. And, and, and when I was worshiping um, in the sanctuary, this word came to me and he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. I was like, where's that in scripture? John 11. When you look at that passage, it's about Lazarus, and it says the sickness isn't unto death. I was like, you trying to tell me something? It's like, oh my gosh, I had the chills. I had the whole thing, like, oh my gosh, what's happening? And then my brother, he calls me. He's like, dude, I was just praying in the room, and like I was just over my Bible, and after I got done praying, I opened my eyes, and like <laughs> the fan like blew the pages, and I looked down, and it's Mark chapter 5 where uh, God heals, and we learned about this in, in Matthew as well, um, where, where, where the woman that had been bleeding for 12 years touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and she's healed. Within a few days, there's a lot to this story. For those of you that want, want to know more about it, I'll tell you. Within a few days, the dog got healed. The dog, like, super, everybody was trying to put the dog down. We, they were at the vet it was my sister and brother-in-law. It's her dog put it, getting ready to put the dog down and go, Tyler goes, no, God told me he's going to heal the dog. God told me he's going to heal the dog. The vet's like, dude, you're crazy. Who is this guy? God told me he's going to heal the dog. And my brother and sister are like, dude, he's suffering, yada, yada, yada. My parents are like, look at the dog. He's suffering. He's like having seizures, all these different things. And we're like, hey, we think that God might do something. Everybody was against us. Within a few days, God healed the dog crazy right now sadly enough like a year and a half later the dog passed away but if god cares that much about sparrows and little dogs like how much more does he care about us really because i don't think that it was so much so about the dog i think it was the prayer of faith and and, and wanting to show god, god god wanting to show himself faithful and that he's loving and that he cares about the intimate details of our life that's a true story amazing crazy Fear God because God cares. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus puts it out there, hey, all these bad things uh, might happen, but recognize this. Whoever confesses me before men, him I'll confess before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I'm going to deny you before my Father in heaven. Let me make the point, and then I'll explain. Third and final point, fearing God leads to commitment despite the cost. Fearing God leads to commitment despite the cost. The cost. Because this isn't just about a confession, about a verbal confession. This is about a public commitment. Okay? My confession reveals my commitment. 
the heart of this is the commitment. And this is, goes through all the way to uh, verse 39. It's about the public commitment. And the confession reveals that commitment. So, I'm married. But if I never told you I was married, like think about that. Think about like if I started like teaching here and doing some things and like I never told you I was married. I never talked to you about my wife. I never mentioned her name and we'd have conversations. I never brought her around. I never said anything about her. Occasionally she'd come and guys would be like, who's that? She's like, oh yeah, you know, she hangs out with me sometimes. She's like, yeah. What if I said that? You guys would question my commitment, right? And then you found out that she was my wife. You'd be like, what? That's your wife? Are you really committed to her? You never talk about her. Same thing goes with our relationship with Jesus. How can we say we're committed to Jesus if we're not confessing his name? If we're not talking about him publicly? I'm proud of my wife. I'm so grateful that she's the woman that God brought in my life. So I'll talk about her. I'll use her in illustrations. I spend time with her all the time. I will publicly confess that she's my wife because that public confession reveals my commitment. Same thing goes with our walk with the Lord. How can we say we're the bride of Christ if we're not publicly confessing the groom? We can't. That's what he's saying. If you're denying me publicly, I'm going to deny you before my Father in heaven because part of this commitment is that you publicly confess me. Jesus called his disciples publicly and they publicly committed to him. What does it mean to confess Christ? Now, it's a lot. It could be as simple as just talking about him, but remember they were talking about Jesus' teaching on sharing the gospel because he sent the disciples out to these different towns, right? That's what we focused on last week. But what does it mean to confess Christ really in context? It means to preach the gospel with my words and with my actions. Uh, I'm claiming Christ's divinity, that he was God in the flesh. I'm claiming that he died for the sins of the world and my personal sins. I'm claiming that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. I'm proclaiming the gospel. That's my confession, but it can connect to so many different things. It could be, like I said, as simple as talking about Jesus. If, I'm in lo- if I say, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. If I love him, I'm going to be thinking about him. If I'm thinking about him, I'm going to be talking about him, right? I talk about the people I love, right? You talk about your family, right? You talk about your husbands, you talk about your wives, you talk about your kids, because you love them. If I love Jesus, I'm going to talk about them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. It says, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I'll read the section. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her brother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Look at that first part. Matthew chapter 10 verse 34. This might throw you off a little bit. It did for me the first time I read this. Do not think I came to bring peace On earth, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wait a minute. Isn't Jesus the Prince of Peace? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Yeah, he's the Prince of Peace, but he's giving further clarity to that name in this moment. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but that peace is only offered to those who receive him and receive his word. Those who accept the gospel of peace receive peace. Those who don't accept peace, they don't accept the gospel of peace, and they reject it, they invite judgment. Even when you look um, back in the Old Testament, so many people will talk about like how God was just this wrathful, vengeful, bloody, gory, warlord God in the Old Testament. But when you look at what he did, uh, I believe it's in Deuteronomy chapter 20, when they were going to the promised land, he sent them and said, hey, Try to make peace with these people. He sent some people out, hey, offer peace. When the people didn't receive peace, he's like, okay, you don't want peace with God. Peace only comes from God. So if you don't have peace from God, then you get judgment. You're inviting the judgment. God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. The peace offering is there. 
It's when we choose not to embrace it, not to receive it, that we're really choosing the alternative. But look what he says. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The sword Jesus is referring to here is the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, says the word of God is living and powerful. This book, it's not just a book. It's living and powerful. Just as, just as my brother heard from the Lord this story about healing this woman that had been bleeding for so many years, he knew God was speaking to him about the dog. He's talking about a, 12, a, a, a woman that had been bleeding for 12 years. God will use this book to speak to us. It's not just a, a, a history book or a, a book of wisdom. It's so much more. It's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even into the division of soul and spirit, of blood and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It divides. The word of God, it divides. That's its intention. The sword of the word is drawing a clear line in the sand. And that's what Jesus is saying here. My sword, my word, the truth that I speak, we're drawing a line right here. And it's going to divide families. You're either for Jesus or you're against him. You either have the Prince of Peace or you don't have peace. Some will say, that's narrow-minded. You're narrow-minded. That's what you're saying, really? That's what you think? That's what Jesus said. That's not just me. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I'm a way, a truth, and a life. He says, no, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That implies there's no other way. There's no other truth. There's no other life. I'm the only way. I'm the only truth. I'm the only life. He's making it exclusive. It's an exclusive claim here. This isn't my opinion. This isn't my interpretation of the Bible. It's what it says. Swords are used to divide. They're meant to divide. The word of God is meant to bring division. It's one side or the other. We either choose to make God's word our standard of living or we choose to live on our own standards and, and live by our own opinions and, and do what we think is the right way. See, the Bible warns us of a time that will come, and I believe that time is very present, when people will begin to listen to what they want to hear and turn from the truth of God's word. If you flip with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, Second Timothy chapter four, verse three, Paul's warning us of this. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. They'll start listening to stories and not the truth that's in the scriptures, the truth of the word of God. When we start listening to things that itch our ears, things that we just like, it sounds good. That sounds good, so I'll live by that. We're treading on very dangerous waters. We either stand on the word of God or we stand on our own opinions or whatever else sounds good. And you might say, well, we're entitled to our own opinions and our own standards of living. And I'd say, so is ISIS. They're entitled to their own opinions. They're entitled to their own standard of living and what they believe is true. But look at what that's costing the world. When we start deciding for ourselves what's true and what's not true, and we stop looking at God's word for the truth, the way the truth, then we're headed down a dangerous path. It's a philosophical term. It's called relativism. Basically, um, it's that all truth is relative to the, the person Okay, so what's true to me might not be true to you. Okay, 
You decide what's true for you and I'll decide what's true for me. There's no absolute truths. Nothing is absolutely wrong or absolutely right. Dangerous grounds. Philosophically, that argument, it breaks down upon itself. Because if I say there's no absolute truths, that's an absolute truth statement. So relativism, <laughs> right, it doesn't work, okay? It's not true. There is a truth, okay? The problem is when we start deciding what's true for us, the Bible warns us of this too. It's Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its way is the end of death. Just because I think something's right doesn't make it right. Just because I think something's true doesn't make it, tr make it true. How many, how many things have you believed in your past have changed over the years? A lot, right? Are there any kids in this room? Who used to believe in the Easter Bunny? Just because I believed in the Easter Bunny, it doesn't make, make the Easter Bunny true, okay? There's things in our life that we used to believe that we don't believe anymore. We see it, oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. There's a lot of things that I didn't believe the Bible five years ago. And now like, I can't get away from the Bible. What happens? How do, we, how do we change what we believe and how do we, what do we look to for the standard? We have to look to the truth, the way, the truth is the life. We have to look to God's word as we look to his word as we look to the truth then we'll start to believe what's real and not believe what's fantasy what's fable what's not true because when we don't hold this as the truth and this as the standard we invite the epitome of evil into this world when you look at the shootings in baton rouge people killing cops come on what does the bible say about authority all authority is placed by God. That doesn't mean that there's not corrupt authority out there. Look at the authority God could place in this world. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Artaxerxes, Caiaphas, all these different people that have done some pretty terrible things, but God still says all authority is placed by God. If you rebel against that authority, you're rebelling against me, and we have people killing cops. Why? Because they're going off what they believe. All cops are bad. So I'm going to take the law into my own hands. Rebelling against the word of the Lord. And look at what it's causing in this world. One of the biggest, other than ISIS, one of the um, biggest new religions, I would say, out there, even though it's not new at all, it's talked about very early in the Old Testament, is, is atheism, but the modern atheism, right? See, this is what happens. When we take God out of the picture, when we say there is no God, if there's no God, there's no moral standard. There's no moral law. There's no, re there's no good and there's no evil. There's no reason for me to do good. There's no reason for me to do anything at all. There's, there's no purpose in life. And what happens when you follow that? It's the relativism thing. It's like, okay, what's true to you is true to you. What's true to you is true to you. No one is protected from anyone because everyone is right according to his or her own views. That invites anarchy. That invites chaos. And that's what's happening. God's getting pushed out of everything. Out of churches, out of schools. Out of churches, yes, I said out of churches. Out of schools, out of our country. Look what's happening. If people, if we decide to recognize this as the truth, as the moral standard to live, I think you'd see this world a lot differently than it is right now. He gave us his word. He gave us a moral code because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. He wants us to experience joy. When we go uh, another way other than the way, then we invite misery and, and evil and wickedness and all these different things that we see are destroying 
the world before us. God's word was meant to divide. It was meant to divide. He wants you to know what's good and what's evil. There's a lot of evil going on right now. He makes it very clear. We're either for him or against him. It's not a gray area. And look what he says. He talks about the family again. He had spoken, we'd spoken about that uh, last week. I'll reread it. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves you, sorry, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The sword is going to divide families. See, Jesus is all about family values, but there are no family values if he's not in the center of the family. So if you take him out of the family, it's division, okay? Yeah, choose me over anyone. That's what he's getting at. Your love for me has to outweigh your love towards anyone because if you choose love for people over your love for God, those relationships aren't going to be what they're meant to be and they're likely going to completely crumble. Okay, yes, I drew a line in the sand. You're either for me or against me. We see Jesus heal specific people in specific situations, sometimes to restore families. So we know Jesus is for families. It's not that. But he's more about his family than your family. His family is the family of God. And he divides the line. He draws the line in the sand. He says, hey, come on my family. And your family is no family at all if it's not a part of my family because that family is not going to last if I'm not in the center of it. Then he says in verse 38, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Wow. What's he saying here? This is a call to radical obedience. The disciples knew what this meant. They saw many walk up to Calvary and carry crosses. This was, this was a normal thing, people being crucified. When you picked up your cross, there, there was no happy ending for that. Okay? You're going to die on the cross. What he's saying here, my way is the cross. It's radical obedience to the point of death. No matter what it costs you, no matter how hard it hurts, I'm calling you to a life of radical obedience. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. It's either my way or the world's way. My way is going to be hard. The path is narrow. It's difficult brings joy. The way of the world, it's broad. Anybody can take that way, but it brings death. It's sure to bring death. He's not saying, follow me and it's going to be easy. No, follow me and it's going to be difficult. Take up your cross. Verse 39, he says, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loves his life, sorry, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I'm always underlining stuff, and I have a tendency to cross out the word of God. I don't know if he's mad at me for that, but it, I like cross out little words on accident. I need a steadier hand. Um, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. What are you saying? Sum it up. Self-preservation leads to death, while self-denial leads to life. Self-preservation, we're trying to preserve the self, leads to death. Self-denial, living for others, living for Jesus, leads to life. Think about it. The life you lived before Jesus was no life at all. What were you living for? You were living for sin. You were living for selfishness. If you were anything like me, you were living for instant gratification. Whatever can make me happy in the moment, that's the thing that I'm going to do. And I was very much into drugs and, and other things. All right, that this is what's going to make me happy. This is what the world says is going to make me happy. I'm going to have money. I'm going to have women. I'm going to have drugs. I'm going to have alcohol. It makes me happy for a moment. And then I'm miserable. I hate my life. This is no life at all. Just living for self. He says, no, if you want to... If you want to find your life, lose it. Quit trying to find it. Lose your life. Don't worry about your life. If you want to find your life, find me. Search for me. Live for me. Live for me. Live for others. You're going to find life. You're going to find the meaning of life. It's so simple, yet it's so hard to do. Why? Because our flesh gets in the way. Our flesh is selfish. 
at its core. Our flesh is always like, me, 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 right? It is. It's like a monster. It's like a monster that needs to be killed. It really does. That's why, that's why we hear in the Bible, that's why Paul says, crucify the flesh. He says, I die daily, not like once, not like it's dead and the old man never came back. He's like, no, I die daily because my flesh is always coming back and trying to resurrect itself. It's always trying to come back. I have to make a decision to die daily to myself and purpose and focus on living for Jesus. And that's what he says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The more I can identify with his death, the more I can identify with his life. And I would say Jesus had a pretty full life. Yeah? <clears throat> Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Basically what he's saying here is, remember he just sent them out, we're an extension of Jesus. We're his ambassadors, if you will. But this also, I just want to um, pull a little application and understanding. He says, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. If we're doing the work of the Lord, and we're sharing the gospel with people, and they don't receive us, don't take it personally. They're just not, they're, they're not receiving Jesus. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. So if somebody curses you out, we talked about some of these stories last time, somebody like persecutes you in any way, it's not directed towards you, it's directed towards Jesus. They receive Jesus, they receive you, they're receiving Jesus. You're sharing the gospel. They're rejecting you, it's not a rejection personally, it's a rejection of Christ. 41, it says, He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Now, Jesus is speaking of uh, the rewards that the apostles get, the disciples, and the rewards of the people that receive him. Those who receive Jesus' servants receive Jesus and will partake in the rewards of Jesus' servant. The greatest reward, eternal life. If you receive the gospel from one of Jesus' servants, you get the greatest reward possible, eternal life. If you support the servants, you're supporting Jesus and you will get your reward. And then he takes it down to like this, the smallest thing. Verse 42, I'll read it again. And whoever gives one of the, these little ones, the little ones that he's referring to here are his little ones, the children of God. It's all God's children. We're all, we're all God's little ones, okay? I don't care how big you are. We're, we're God's little ones, okay? Specifically, the little ones that are sent out to do the work of the ministry. So those are his little ones in, these, in this setting, the 12 apostles. And he says, if you get him a cold cup of water, in the name of a disciple, if you're, if, you're, if you're doing these things to support the work of the ministry, to support the servants in the ministry, you're doing it for me. You'll get your reward. I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. The smallest acts. He's saying from the smallest to the largest, the smallest act of service, just getting somebody a cup of water, doing anything for the work of the ministry, that doesn't go unnoticed by God. He sees it and he's going to reward you for that. So all of those that, that came out this last week, uh, Friday and Saturday, to, to help Mary with food ministry, praise God, you're going to get your reward. And all of those that are volunteering for VBS, saw a big meeting the other day on Saturday, yesterday, you're going to get your reward. He rewards the smallest things. He rewards the largest things. But if you're supporting the work of the ministry, you will not lose your reward. In a time 
when it's getting harder and harder to live for Jesus. Everything in the world is telling us not to. Everything from secular elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, colleges, to friends, to family members. The way of the world is completely contrary to Jesus. It's hard to live for Jesus. I pray that we would be people that have the fear of the Lord and that fear of the Lord would be much greater than our fear of the world. We can expect not to fit in in the world. I said it last time, you're gonna lose friends for living if you live for the gospel, but you're also gonna gain better friends. But it's the fear of God, the love of God, that's going to lead us to live a life that's set apart and different. Remember, last time, last week, we are God's plan. He didn't have another plan. It wasn't like, uh, well, if the church doesn't end up doing what they're supposed to be doing, then I got a backup plan. There's no backup plan. He's going to come back eventually. But in the meantime, we're his only plan to get the gospel across to the nations because the world is so messed up because they stopped living by this. They started living by their own hearts and their own standards and their own opinions. And as long as that happens, you're going to have cops killed. You're going to have terrorists. You're going to have all these different things. When we walk away from the truth and make our own truths, we invite evil into this world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word, God, and the truth that it brings, God. It's hard to hear sometimes, Lord. Um, It pierces our hearts, Jesus, and we can look at your word and see uh, so many ways um, that we fall short. God, but I pray that that one thing would be consistent, that um, we would choose to put your word, your way, your truth, your life as the standard by which we strive for. Lord, we know there's, there's grace for the fall. We know there's forgiveness from you. God, but I pray that we wouldn't sway to the right or the left, that we would choose your word as the standard, knowing that it's going to divide friends, family, so many different things. Lord, but I pray um, and that everybody would share this heart. I, I, I would gladly rather stand on your side of the line in the stand, sand than on the other side with the rest of the world. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen.